Podcast. I am your host, Jennifer Barron. I am coming to you from the traditional territory of Haudenosaunee, the Wendat, and the Anishinaabe. I am on the Williams Treaty. Today, our guest is Juliet Robertson. Juliet is the author of two books, Messy Maths and Dirty Teaching, and she is also a leading education consultant who specializes in outdoor learning and play in Scotland. She works at the national level to deliver training, giving keynote speeches, and leading and supporting innovative outdoor projects. She is also the founder of Creative Star Learning, and you can find her website on creativestarlearning.co.uk. STAR stands for Juliet Providing Support, Training, Advice, and Resources on Almost All Aspects of Outdoor Learning and Play. In this conversation, Juliet and I talk a lot about math and outdoor learning, where it's gone, where you can start, and where it's going. Thank you for joining me in speaking with Juliet Robertson. Welcome to the Eco Inquiry Podcast. Today, our guest is Juliet Robertson. Juliet comes to us from Scotland. She is the author of Messy Maths, Dirty Teaching, and the website Creative Star. Juliet is incredibly generous with the information she shares about outdoor learning with other educators. Welcome, Juliet. Hello, and thanks for having me on this broadcast, Jen. It's very exciting to be working with you. It's exciting to be working with you again. Thank you. I'm going to jump right in and ask you, Juliet, what brought you to outdoor learning? What brought you to this journey? Can you tell us a little bit about your story? I always laugh when people ask me that because unlike many people, I don't have a particularly romantic view of my childhood experiences and nature. I spent a lot of time being cold and so that dominated my enjoyment or not of being outside. Um, But there were some key things that made a big difference. First of all, I liked dressing up. So um, getting dressed up to go into the rain for me was actually an interesting and exciting thing to do. When I was nine years old, I remember being given a worksheet about pollution and I was in shock that humans thought this was acceptable. Not long before this, I had climbed my first mountain and was inspired by the beauty of the landscape. So for me, I couldn't understand why we were allowing ourselves to pollute a beautiful world in which we lived. And I still have that puzzlement, even now, you know, decades later. Um, The other thing that's of relevance too is that my mother and my maternal grandparents were Quakers. So I was raised in a political household where we were encouraged to question what was happening in the world and supported to believe that every individual can make a difference and can think and act in accordance with their beliefs. So there wasn't a time where I wasn't ever not encouraged to express, to question and and to, to have that expectation that my job is to make a difference. 
Um, so I think that's that's a, a core part of my childhood. Um, when I left school, I actually ran away from from home, not in the traditional sense, but I didn't have a happy childhood, particularly teenage years. And the safest way of running away was to go to university. So I left school when I was 16. That's not because I'm gifted. That's just how the system can work sometimes in Scotland. And I went to university to study environmental science because I wanted to understand about acid rain, desertification and what how our world worked. Um, as part of that, I realised very quickly that I wasn't into studying. So I arranged for two things to happen. First of all, I was doing too much work. So I asked all my friends and other people at university, what is the easiest, simplest course to do here? Um, we would use the word dossier in Scotland. What's the dossiest course? And everyone said education. You get a B just for turning up. And I thought, that's my course. So I dropped chemistry, took up education and loved it. But I wasn't allowed to continue to study that with environmental science as a high school teacher. So I decided that I wouldn't become a high school teacher. I would finish my environmental science degree and then I would go and have a think about what area of education I would want to go into. Um, and halfway through, I took a gap year and... Um, I did many things to connect myself with children and nature because I didn't know anything about nature. I didn't know the difference really much more than you got things like ducks, geese and swans. So I deliberately spent that year training myself to recognize and know more about children and more about nature. And this accumulated in a long um, study period. Um, I, I went to Philadelphia to work at the Norris Square Neighbourhood Project, which is still going today. Um, and um, I worked with a group of 11 to 14 year olds um, on a summer programme of environmental and outdoor activities. And that was very formative because this was in a Puerto Rican neighbourhood. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if there was X there. Yep. No, I'm, I'm, no, there isn't an echo. You're doing really well. Thank you. I, I'm so fascinated. There's so many things I want to interject with because there are some, you know, similar paths. I took a year off in between. I also did environmental studies and then decided that, okay, the science is there, but the will is not, the education piece is not there. So I also, you know, intertwined those two disciplines. So I'm fascinated. So just, just keep talking. It's beautiful. Thank you. Okay, so this, so going to Philadelphia, I got funded by the Quakers to go and do something that William Penn would approve of. So in our more enlightened age, I think this is very interesting given the rising questioning colonialization of different parts of the world. And there's me being sent to do something that William Penn would approve of. Can very you tell us just for the listeners who is a little bit about him just quickly. Okay, so William Penn was a Quaker and he had very close connections with King Charles I, I think it was. And so um, he was sent over to North America and was given a piece of land, Pennsylvania, over which he could um, lay down the law and um, claim as, 
as as his state effectively is right. my understanding <laughs> awkward right. but but unusually he created this as a, a place where people were free to um um follow whatever religion they believed in right and philadelphia means city of brotherly love and was set up with a vision of a green country town so, so puritans and puritans and quakers who were getting um persecuted both in scotland england and then in what has, is now the united states they felt more safe there basically that's it and people from other religions that maybe weren't regarded as as the the current um one so that was interesting too the the whole sort of quaker connections and i think i think there's now questions to be asked over the quaker legacy in north america right. and right. what happened so so big questions from all of this come out of even just a simple visit like that and the other thing that was very interesting for me as a white child growing up in white Scotland, um, I went to a Puerto Rican neighborhood. Um, and that was very interesting because I had to live daily with the effects and impacts of racism very overtly rather than in the subtle form that we tend to feel exists at the moment. Um, and that was that raised a lot of questions for me, but not least the fact that I had white privilege and that I was choosing to be in that neighborhood and I was choosing to do that work and I could leave at any time and I could use this experience as a springboard to greater things, none of which were as easily and as readily available to my colleagues and and Puerto Rican teenagers with whom I worked and I was 19 and some of these children and young people were 14 so not a big age difference you know when I look back now these are people approaching their 50s <laughs> you know so so again very interesting in in terms of um just understanding but a key message came out of that for me, and that is no one else is going to do the work for you. If you want change, you are going to actually have to elicit that change. It, it won't happen in any other way. Um, and in that summer, we as a group of young Puerto Rican teenagers and myself and the Puerto Rican um, community worker, we just did what we could with what we had. We had very little money. So we would do things like, say, we'd go for a hike and we'd just go due south because you can do with all the grid system. But we could, we might have money for the metro back, the L line back. So things like that is, is how we learned. You know, we, we looked after the neighbourhood park because it was in a place where the parks department decreed it was too small to be classified as a park. So they didn't tidy it. And the um, sanitation department or whoever else normally picked up all the bins said, no, that's green space. That's the park. So it only ever got cleaned by official people when something important was going to happen, like a visit from the president of the United States or something. So that's again, fascinating. Really, yeah. yeah. So, so when people think that 
racism is nothing to do with the outdoors or cultural, our social and cultural things, all is good outside. I had very raw experiences that we're going to have to fight equity for equity and for justice in, in any aspect of our lives. You know, there is, we, we cannot escape from this. And how have you carried that work on? Because like you said, you were 19. So that particular aspect of eco-justice and, you know, fighting racism and inequity, and may I include poverty with race as well. And, you know, going into schoolyards where um, at first look, they're, they're just asphalt. They're, they're in a poor neighborhood. And, um, you know, so how have you continued that work to um, expand inclusiveness in schoolyards where you are now? God, that's a great question, Jen. I think two things. First of all, I, I don't judge a space by the amount of greenery in there because we can make a difference. Um, and it doesn't necessarily require huge amounts of money. So a good example of this was two and a half years ago, I worked with a nursery, a, a preschool practice in Aberdeen, and we decided to go for what we called a pop-up playground based on what I'd seen good work happening, particularly from somebody called Simon Hutchinson down in um, Adelaide, who has done some marvellous and creative work. And he had a pop-up playground in, a, in an indoor place just for children as part of a, a show or an exhibition. I can't remember what, but I looked at this and thought, we can do this outside. So we did that and we involved our grade sixes. So straight away, there's the strategy there is if we collaborate our older children with our younger children, this creates a stronger sense of community, but also a child who's been actively involved in shaping and creating an outdoor space, as they go through their teenage years, may be less likely to go back and do damage either intentionally or inadvertently to those spaces that Okay, so we were talking about enriching schoolyards that you may show up and there's a tarmac, there's not much, and you are engaging the older students to develop a sense of identity and ownership. But I, and, and you were talking about how then perhaps they may not vandalize, but I'm also curious about how that builds leadership for um, their own sense of skills and perhaps even eco action. So. So how do you find that combination of older students and younger students with that leadership piece? Um, I think it's wonderful. I think anything that involves intergenerational work with a focus and purpose tends to work well. So both the older children, they have to think about what can my, my child manage? So this involved actually building things like transporting four tons of soil, um, not soil, sand from the front of the school round to the um, preschool playground at the side. And so there's things like, does my child have the right size of buckets? How do they need my help? Or can I take a wheelbarrow of sand with me? You know, who's going to help at the other end, that sort of thing. So there is a lot of ongoing problem solving that an older child has to do to work with 
and support a younger child. And likewise, it's that valuing of what a little child can do within that project as well. So I think I think it, it, it works very well in terms of leadership and they are shaping their environment. They are having control. They are building their own playground, which then gives them a sense of purpose and satisfaction. So when they play there, they made this space that can never be taken away from those two classes that they made that space. Others will come and shape it and change it and adapt it, but they were the catalyst. That's quite and then, simple. you know, once they have that space and you have many pictures of these enriched spaces on your website and in Messy Maths, can we get into talking about how learning outdoors engages students in a completely different way, particularly I, I know that your passion is with math and you've inspired me and so many other educators to bring our math learning outdoors. So could you tell us then about that elevated engagement level that you've witnessed over the years with students? Yes. So let's keep to maths because it's a nice focus. And often it's a one that people level at. If you can't do something like maths outside, why should we bother doing it? Well, there's, of course, as you know, lots of other reasons for being outside. But maths is quite good as a, as a curriculum focus. And there's three things that we need to think about when we teach maths outside, because we're rethinking how we teach the maths. First of all, we're using natural materials. Now, these might be found within a schoolyard or we may import. If it's an entirely asphalt area, then it could be that we encourage children to, to collect sticks from other places that is sustainable and in line with the park or local authorities approach. Um, these can feel more friendly to children, particularly those who've lost interest or motivation in maths. Because a stick is a stick, yeah? You know, it's Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. it only becomes a measuring tool should we choose to use it that way should we cut it to a certain length or or use it in a particular way secondly we make the most of the environment around us to help us learn and understand maths principles and concepts that rarely happens in a classroom other than maybe if you've if you've made a display or something and by having to transfer our knowledge, skills and understanding from one context, such as learning about a concept in a textbook to another, we have to really apply problem solving, creativity, practical elements and things like that. So and, and the best way to think about that is, well, would you rather measure a picture of something in a textbook, like that might be a picture of a teddy bear and you're learning about centimetres. Do you want to measure the width of that teddy bear? Or would you rather go outside and find something that you measure instead? I firmly agree. I often say for how many years in a row, I mean, can we ask children to measure the area and perimeter of their desks? Or take out a book and measure the area and perimeter of your notebook. Oh, come on, year after year, this gets dull. Yeah. Yeah, this is it. And when you ask children, what would you like to measure the area and perimeter of, then that becomes a very, very interesting one, because then they have to start gauging what skills do they have and what are the shortcomings, you know, and it's, it's very easy to measure a basketball court with a trundle wheel. But the moment you go beyond a rectangular space, 
you have to really think about it. And this is where things like cut sticks. So if you have a bunch of sticks that are cut to 20 centimetres, they'll quickly learn that they need five of those to make a metre and therefore they'll need 25 to make five metres. And suddenly they are doing quite complex calculations that may still be around area and perimeter, but are on their terms and in their way. And you're building is, in the numeracy and uh, constantly going back to those number skills. That's it. And the discussions and things like that. And then finally, the third thing. So we've got the use of natural materials or loose parts. We've got the making the most of the environments. But the third thing is that the work needs to be practical because sitting around outside, particularly in cold weather, isn't going to work. Now, we get what we call dreech weather here that's wet and windy. You get that classic continental weather in much of Canada, you know, of hot summers, sometimes humid. And then at other times, you've got the, those wonderful dry, cold, snowy winters. So all of that, you know, means that we want practical things that involve us moving and using our bodies. Exactly. And we have many months of inclement weather and snow. And the number one reason I hear from educators for that is a barrier for not taking their kids outside is the weather. So of course we know that we have to dress for the weather, but this is being recorded in the fall, but airing in January. Can And you have wonderful activities on your Creative Star blog about snow. I'm also curious about your Canadian connection because you stopped at Pennsylvania, but I know you've spent time working in outdoor ed in Canada. So can you tell us about that and perhaps inspire us with some snow math? Yes, I thank you, Jen. I was very fortunate back in the mid 90s to have a teaching exchange to Ontario, to Sheldon Outdoor Centre, which is halfway between Alliston and Orangeville and um, serves the grade six um, children who were at that time from the East York Board of Education. It's now been merged into the Toronto education system. It's, it's now one one big conglomerate isn't it but it is, um, yes that was really great because oh my goodness me when you start thinking about snow first of all like sand it becomes your world's biggest interactive whiteboard so suddenly if you need to do a calculation you don't need paper you've got the heel of your boot and off you go you can draw right in the sand with your feet doesn't have all your mitt it doesn't even have to be, you don't even need to take off and, and use a finger. You can use a stick if you want to. So that's one thing, you've, you've got that. So you've got your world's biggest interactive play, your, your whiteboard, there on your ground. You've also got stuff that can be sculpted, molded, shaped. So certainly investigations into volume and area and um, three-dimensional shape exploration becomes much more meaningful. Um, so if you think about the skills needed to make an igloo, for example, you normally have to cut blocks of snow, don't you, and compact them and things like that. So you can look and consider how do you do this efficiently as a class, for example? How do you make those those blocks of ice the same? How do you build it in a, in a time efficient way? So suddenly you can have group teamwork going on and problem solving. You know, you can limit it to say, if you are only allowed so many cuboid blocks of, of compact snow, you know, what size of igloo will you build if you have 100 of these? 
And then it connects to social studies with Inuit culture, of course. And uh, we've only tried that once as a family and it's very difficult, but I have students using snow and different, um, the ice and the crust of snow is amazing for building as well. Uh, so there are so many possibilities and I really encourage listeners to go to Juliet's Creative Star website and look up snow activities. Juliet, what does all of this do for math achievement levels? You have been doing this work for years now. And in Scotland, you have a national education system, whereas we're provincial and territorial. So the decisions are made on more of a micro level. But I'm really curious if you have some solid data around outdoor learning and maths and maths achievement. Yes, I do. There's not a lot. Um, and, and the reason for that is that when you really, really start to explore, first of all, most maths research departments aren't that interested in the outdoors. So that's so it, it is very niche. And most of the stuff comes from people who are enthusiastic. But um, I'm just going to pull up now because I, I thought it might be useful to, to look at this. So three years in 2016-17 in Scotland, um, we've had what, what's called funding for attainment challenge. In other words, what different creative ways can we come up with in Scotland to help raise levels of attainment in core subjects such as literacy, numeracy, health and well-being? And in one part of Scotland, West Lothian, two primary school clusters were involved with 120 year four children. Um, and they, they worked outside for two hours a week over a 12 week period. Um, half of them didn't. Half of them did the same stuff, but inside. And what they found was that over... Um, when they studied this, that children's attitudes to learning showed a 20% increase over the year in the cohort that had gone outside. The performance team also found that there was a significant increase in the value-added data for mental arithmetic and general maths displayed by the study group against both the control and the whole of the West Lothian P5 cohort, and that the children who had had this input of outdoor maths work gained on average six months of mental arithmetic and two months of general maths against a similar cohort of children within the control schools. So that's a, a, a very sort of, you know, fixed study. There's always going to be people who will pull research apart. Was this a good research setup? I don't know, but I do know from my own work with Dundee City that we are beginning to get um, primary class teachers, elementary teachers, really questioning what are they doing outside and why. And we had in particular one very talented grade six teacher um, called Charlene Smith. And Charlene did some really interesting work. Her school with her deputy um, principal, um, a guy called Danny Albayati, had created um, two scales, one for engagement and one for attainment on a rating of one to 10, with sort of one being no engagement, will not engage at all with the class, with the activity, in fact, may not even be in the class at that point, to full engagement and 100% attainment. 
and what they did was they she chose three children and invited them into participating in the tracking of their progress and what they did was week on week they tracked one indoor maths lesson and one outdoor and rated what was their levels of engagement on these scales and what was the levels of, of attainment. And what they found was that improvements happened inside and out, but the scores were consistently higher, um, usually by 20% or more outside. So, that so that's that's fascinating. I mean, so you have relatively small cohorts, but even these patterns, I think, could I mean, they need to be documented and researched more. But the um, I think most teachers would be able to do an engagement scale of indoor and outdoor, you know, and and so that one, I think, for us to do outdoor learning, we can say that one's really obvious and we could we could do really some very clear research on that with 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 scales but the attainment level the achievement level is fascinating and uh, then and what you are saying about their ability to do mental math and i wonder if you can talk to us about math talk and the sort of math talk that happens outside which is you know about um which is reflecting what's going on in children's minds and the teacher's mind how does that math talk differ from your experience and what you've heard outside compared to inside? Okay, I'm going to turn around to you, Jen, and say, why are you asking me this? We are on different sides of the Atlantic and you are asking me a question that actually is one of the first things that teachers at all grade levels notice outside you take your children outside you set them a task using natural materials engaging with the environment whatever that's practical and suddenly we are hearing much higher quality levels of talk absolutely i only ask one question where's the math where's the math and then that's they it. they scoot all around and they have conversations and then i say what do you need to go further with that conversation and then we get the materials and you know that I've learned from you, Sammy the Snake, and various measuring materials. And the conversation is just, just so incredibly rich and what's going on in their minds is so rich. So it's fascinating to me that this has been recorded, that the mental math, like you're saying, is going up and their attainment is going up 20%, very significant levels. They are significant. And again, to, there's two things here, Charlene, after after tracking in her first year, she's been doing this for two years now. She's she said she's these were the statements she said. Low level achievers in her class are excelling through outdoor learning. Outdoor numeracy and maths is encouraging children to talk about their learning. Children feel the challenge of task is greater outside. So look, we're stretching children now too. This isn't just supporting the least stable. This is about meeting the needs of every child outside. The children are engaging more in outdoor teaching. Relationships with peers through their talking is improving. And the maths vocabulary becomes second nature to children in an outdoor setting. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. So I'm working on my master's right now. I wasn't going to bring this into the conversation, but it's really relevant because what I've studied in my last subject, courses are called subjects, I'm doing it through an Australian university, is the correlation between engagement and like you said, even attendance. Mm 
okay? Because the first thing you have to do is actually attend, right? But it's related to COVID. So through COVID, there have been huge lacks of attendance, okay? And then this idea of what is bringing people back? Why do families really want their children to go back to school? Not just a superficial, well, of course they need to go back to school, but why? And so I did a little bit of research with my families. Again, it's a very small cohort, but the number one reason they said was hands-on learning. The number two reason they would say is social relationships. So, you know, we're having this conversation over a computer. We've pivoted back and forth with hybrid and online because it's an emergency response. But the reality is in order to engage families, parents are saying, my child learns best with their hands. Parents know that their children need to be physically involved in the learning. And what you've said is that you know, you have very skilled teachers who are doing research around what this actually produces, the, the results it produces. So, you know, go, coming out of COVID and the trauma of COVID, how do you even see this hands-on learning improving the engagement even more? Well, I, I think this, that's, that's really interesting because I think, I think what COVID has done is it's opened up the outdoors to more teachers more of the time. Because, because I mean, we know as seasoned outdoor educators, outdoor education used to be seen as the riskier place, but all of a sudden breathing that outdoor air, the indoor space is the riskier space. So it's true, it brought this sort of watershed to, of, of teachers taking their students for outdoor learning, but we know we can't just transport that learning outside, desks, worksheets, not great pedagogy. We have to we have to change you know the pedagogy we're doing, which is which is your role in in supporting teachers. Well, this is it, and and in my experience, there's two things here. With with teachers, we are experts in children, and in the curriculum, and all things educational, rather than experts of the outdoor environment in whatever shape or form that is. I firmly agree this designing the task. So we're experts in the kids. We're experts in, in the curriculum, just like you said, but it's that this is, we're both getting really excited. It's the, how do you design the task? That's it. So we, we build on the skills we as teachers already have and the experience. And, and that's why a, a lot of the stuff I talk about is, is if you think of the outdoors as a swimming pool, you can dive in the deep end or you can splash around in the shallow end. And I tend to splash around much more in the shallow end when encouraging people, because I know it's an awful shock if you push somebody into the deep end too soon. You know, they may come up fighting and breathing for breath, but they're probably less inclined to get back in. So Whereas if you have fun playing around in the shallow end. So this is what I mean. So we're all experts in clever ways in which children can line up get themselves organized, have the equipment they need. So lining up is a core mathematical part of the day. How quickly can we line up? Oh, we took 10 minutes last week. I wonder if we can beat the clock this time. What should we use to time? Stopwatch, sand timer, or shall I count an elephants? You know, <laughs> there's things like that. So things when we line up, how many are in one line? How many in another? Okay, but we're in grade six. We don't need to be counting in ones. What happens if each person had to count their digits? 
what do we mean by digits? So are you counting in tens or twenties? Because we've got toes as well. Now we've suddenly increased the challenge. How many more digits are in the line of people that had cereal this morning for breakfast compared to those that didn't? You know, so all of a sudden we are using our skill set as a teacher to, to, to get ready to go out. We might look at things on the way out as part of the provocation too, so that we have something to discuss when we get outside. Like what's the most unusual two-dimensional shape in our school? You know, and I'm not asking people to count squares. We'll get lost. Do you know what I mean? And triangles, really? Do you know what I mean? But, but on the other hand, if you ask for, you know, which is the most unusual shape, then we have to go beyond maybe the standard two or three dimensional shapes and we'll get people to discuss. And on the way back and you can have a closer look at that unusual shape. We are experts already in circle games. So we start with a gathering circle and we use the circle formation. We then want to know that we are safe. So we define our working boundary. We don't have a classroom walls, but there might be fences. We can put a chalk line or little cones out to define the working space. And that is important because in my experience, children will go use the maximum amount of distance that you give them permission to have. So if you have a whole playing field, there will be a group that goes to the furthest place as far away from you as they possibly can. So you may have to define that and with some groups it may start by literally taking two spaces away from the gathering circle and you you help train the children that this is a learning space at this given moment in time maybe a play space during recess but right here right now it's our learning space and then from there you can do run around games you can explore the environment but those little sets of things start and then of course we can review where we've gone you know, so we can do reviewing techniques. It could be using a rope that we pass around and we stop and think when the knock comes to us. It could be a plus minus interesting graph that we make up on the ground, a human graph. Now, plus minus interesting isn't an outdoor idea. It's Edward de Bono's thinking skills. So do you see how we've got this rich, rich um, bank of experience and ideas as teachers that we can apply to any context, including the outdoors. That is the magic. It's taking those instructional intelligence strategies that we know and transporting them outside in a meaningful way and taking, pushing ourselves with that little bit of risk. You know, like you said, dabbling in the shallow end. With the resources that you have, Messy Maths, Dirty Teaching, your website, if teachers, if some of our listeners are just starting, with taking the math outdoors. Where do you recommend teachers start? So they have their class outside, they may have, you know, whatever their, their class or their schoolyard looks like. Where can they start with some of the resources you have provided? So on my website, when you go in, there's a right-hand column. Um, if you look at it on a desktop computer or a laptop and on the right-hand side, underneath my photo, there's a search button. Type in a word you're interested in. <laughs> Fractions, see what comes up. The other thing you can also do is if you keep on the right-hand side, there's little picture buttons and one of them says maths outside. And when you click on that, you get taken to a page. There's almost a hundred different blog posts. So you can see what activities I've explored and experienced. And at the top of that, there's some videos to watch. And furthermore, there's um, a download of maths games. 
And that can be a very, very safe way in. Because very often, if, if people are worried about behaviour, which is often a, a core concern until they realise actually, as a general rule, children love being outside, so they really want to stay outside, so they behave wonderfully, you know, it's, it's only if they have been told that this is our play space, which sometimes during recess it is, but different spaces have different purposes at different times of the day and year. And part of being at school is learning that. You know? So it is. So, so th that's where I would go. And you can just pick and choose what, what appeals to you and what's Thank relevant. you so much. You put up so much generous information in your own mind. And, you know, with seasoned teachers who have been at this for a while, what do you think are the next steps? Even, even, you know, post COVID or, or we're still in COVID, but as the pandemic starts to hopefully continue to wane um, and children are vaccinated, what, what do you see as the next steps with maths and outdoor learning? What, what are you continuing to explore? What drives your passion? Yes, I, I think there's, there's two things here. So you need to question, you need to take a long, hard look at your own practice and reflect am I always using the same space and am I always using the same approaches so with my work in Dundee there was a brilliant quote from one student because we surveyed the students quite regularly and one of them just said oh no not sticks again <laughs> you know this rings so true Juliet if I can just interject for a moment because when we found with COVID that really we were all taking our lessons outside certain spaces became premium and so one of the things that I worked um, with the professional learning community of our, our primary staff was to create a, a large schoolyard map and we did a walkabout with their math curriculum in mind and we stretched our own thinking of where we could do the math outdoors. And suddenly, and then we actually invited parents and system leaders in to see the entire primary division doing maths outside in various spaces of the schoolyard and spaces where you wouldn't traditionally think you would do math. And also we pushed ourselves to go sort of beyond the measurement and geometry to, to put, we used a lot of your activities. I have to tell you, kudos to you because that was the, the Creative Star and Messy Maths. They were our go-to for the activities to do this, but it really expanded teachers' comfort level of using different spaces around the yard. And we often think to just use the natural spaces but it encouraged us to use the human built spaces and human built structures as well. There's so much math in a fence, in a school wall, in, all the, in, the, in the basketball court. And I've been mentoring uh, younger teachers with this as well. And they're fascinated by this. You know, if you start early in your career, um, I, th when, I think when you're brave and courageous and you, you wanna, you, you have that growth mindset. So um, thank you for that. I think, I think that's very, very important. Well. What interests me is um, not what I, I started doing what I was doing because I would argue that I became a born again teacher when I, I actually remember it was in 2011 and I was teaching, funnily enough, area and perimeter to a school and they'd done stuff on measuring their 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 basketball court and they got absolutely stuck because the 
they had been asked to measure their wildlife garden and they couldn't do it because the shape was too big and too complex. And I realized we had to go back several places to fill in the conceptual gaps so that we could move forward and eventually achieve that task. And in the back of my car, um, I had some sticks and I was really embarrassed about them because I had bought these sticks just because I'd wanted to see more about them from a company called Muddy Faces in, in England. And I was really embarrassed because I was thinking, nobody should be buying sticks, this is ridiculous. But I realized that the sticks were 30 centimeters and 60. So suddenly we could teach one about area and perimeter because we knew the cut lengths. But furthermore, we could introduce ratio. So we could do little pictures and large pictures. We could transfer that to grid paper. And the proportional reasoning. This is it. So that was sort of one of those divine aha moments. And you can see that on my blog, where there's a whole heap of sudden maths posts all around using sticks. And I've just gone. Blah, 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 blah. But I find with teachers that once they've got that idea of the creative possibilities, all I've done is provided a springboard into their own creativity. And I would argue that people like yourself, Charlene, most of the teachers that I've worked with will go away and do a much, much better job than I could ever have imagined. And oh, I'm not sure about that. I'm sure you do incredible work, but you inspire that curiosity. And like you said, even though you can be far along in your teaching career, you can have these born again teaching moments, which inspire your curiosity to grow. And they also inspire that creativity, which is re-energizing. You know, if we're all exhausted from teaching in in COVID, these are some sources of inspiration to get us back sort of revved up and jazzed up again about teaching. They're, it's it's the creativity. And I, I love the, that that's the name of your blog as well. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how things, it stands for, the star is support, training, advice and resources. And when I started, I knew I was going to do something outside, but I didn't know what. So I just kept it very open-ended and I went for blue as a theme because my specialism in environmental science was, was microclimatology and I like the sky and I like and the water. Drinking. That's it. So, so to me, there was associations with the colour and the name that at first glance may not be obviously outdoorsy. And with hindsight, it was really good because if I'd gone for a more earthy thing like forest something or woody something or muddy something there's everybody's got every name under the book and I just wanted it to be much more expansive this is about possibility you know that's why you I use the name inquiry that. exactly I love yeah. it yeah. Juliet I interrupted you in to interject what was going on with our school about pushing spaces but you said to you know experienced teachers who are pushing themselves in this way you said there are two things one for you to uh, go beyond the school, uh, the spaces in the schoolyard you normally use. And there was a second thing that you were going to say, and I wonder if you said it. Can you remember what it was? <laughs> um, yes. So check what type of activity are you offering? Is it always chalk? on the playground, on the asphalt? Is it always sticks? Going back to that kid who said, oh no, not sticks again. Is it always run around games? Are you actually limiting what you are offering into because that's your comfort zone? So for example, um, you know, it could be that you're doing a lot 
of 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 chalk work but is that because your com that's your your equivalent of um i don't know a giant piece of paper so that's one way of extending your practice or the second there's a third way and the third way is is something that i would love to claim inspiration for but um i was really inspired by um a maths mastery program called maths no problem and they referred to maths journaling as an approach for children to record what they're doing now this is nothing about their feelings about maths it's about the hardcore learning and the second year I was working with Dundee teachers, I said to them, I haven't done this myself. So I feel very rude in asking you to do something that I as a teacher haven't tried myself, but I think this has got mileage in it. And um, I asked them to do 10 minutes of mathematical journaling when they came back into the class to capture the learning that had taken place outside. And how do you think that solidifies that learning and connects to memory? Well, there's two things. First of all, I was asked, I was saying, please don't go for a paragraph. Go for teach your children how to sketch notes. So if Tanya is listening to this, what's Tanya's last name? She's now Murray. Yeah, Tanya Murray. And I know that you guys talked a lot about sketch noting and then you did a blog on it so people can look look for that. Well, she needs to know that it's been taken this step further because I, I showed people about sketch noting and said, I think this will work better for journaling purposes. If your children know that they can do quick sketches to capture the essence of what happened. Now, when I looked at the journaling examples that came back in and I asked for the good, the bad and the ugly, I said, don't just bring in your best examples, bring in your worst too, because those are of value. This is a, a, a community of learning. What was really interesting was every single teacher had used recall style of journal journaling. In other words, what we covered, what the learning intention was and what that was all about. None of them had taken investigative approaches or had moved the learning on. So if you think of Bloom's taxonomy of learning and you've got creation and you've got investigation and you've got application and, and things like that, then making the indoor capturing of the learning one step in that continuum, continuum sorry, I think will really stretch you and your children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and really, these are also about making connections. It's that synthesis piece. And if we take into account the creative piece, will the children come up with their own new thoughts, you know, this constructivist approach, are they going to be able to come up with, you know, I'm not saying that they're going to, to come up with a theory of relativity or something like that on their own, but are they going to come up with new ways of solving problems for them? Not just a recall, well, this is how we do it, but this is a new way that I do it, did it, and a sense of ownership over that. Yes, I think, I think, it, I think it comes, but it comes with practice and modeling and scaffolding and support from the teacher to, to, to explore possibilities as a shared community with their, their class. So that there's a lot of collaborative thinking and we build upon each other's ideas. But a great example of that came from a child in Sweden many years ago who was working with a friend and she just turned around when they were investigating shadows and said, do you think that we could measure the height of a building 
um, when if my shadow is the same height as me on the ground, does that mean that at that same time, the height of the building's shadow is the same height as the building on the ground? Fascinating. Now that is very, very powerful mathematical thinking mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. investigation. Mm -hmm. so I wonder I how they it, solved it, <laughs> or did they? <laughs> I'm not sure, but I've used that as a context because you can take things like, you know, you can talk to the children. How could we prove that as a as a theory? You know, can we investigate that? And it could be that you could take out things like a little Lego man. And yourself. I'm going to do that because right now, as the as the fall happens, the sun is more low during our math period in the uh, southern hemisphere, and it creates wonderful the potential for wonderful shadows on our schoolyard on our tarmac for the next three or four months and so we could do a lot of proportional investigation with with shadows fascinating yeah, yeah it is isn't it and, mm -hmm. and this is where I I think ideas just become more apparent so it never occurred to me whether or not triangles could have curved sides. I've blogged about this because okay. I was in a park one day and I looked and there was um, some, you know, a piece of, um, plant, of, of some plants, some had been planted in a formal arrangement, but two sides were straight and the third side was curved. And I'm going, that's triangular in its look but it doesn't meet the standard criteria of what I would define as a triangle. But why can't a triangle have a curved edge? And it took me six months of exploring that as a, as a theme, just personally. And eventually I found the fact that our geometry is taught on Euclidean principles using a flat geometric plane. So therefore, we define a triangle within that flat plane with having straight edges. But if you imagine a tarp laid out and you draw on that tarp a triangle, now take a stick and lift it up. Suddenly that triangle goes wonky, doesn't it? This is reminding me of a conversation my partner Mark and I had at the beach last weekend where we can see a long, long horizon line, but also not just far away, but we can see it um, from side to side. And so you would think, you know, a child, even an adult's drawing, if you're drawing the horizon line, it's straight. But actually, if you really look at it carefully, it's slightly curved. And so at what, and, and even the, um, the, distance that you can see is if you were to draw it, you'd have to do it slightly higher up in the center in order for it to be to look the way your eye is is actually seeing and for I think for that to be more mathematically correct so there's more fluidity about lines and and true math then I think we're we are stuck in, like you said, with this Euclidean way of doing. Now there are there are mathematical laws. There's no doubt about it, but um, we have to take into account, I think, more flexibility. Well, I think this is where, when you asked about inclusivity, 
we know there are different ways of knowing about the world and being in the world. And I think this is where we have to have these conversations. And I illustrate this a lot with a, with a picture of a giant compass that can be seen on the grounds in a, in a northern town called Morecambe. And you can see each angle of those 360 degrees is very clear and separate, unlike with the protractor where all the lines are pretty close together. Now in our curriculum at grade six, you're allowed to be out by one or two degrees. If you give, if you're being asked to measure something, the teacher has to accept that there's going to be an error, a little field error in that, that judgment. So you're allowed to accept answers within one or two degrees of the, the correct answer. And as I point out to children, that's fine for us in our little textbooks. But if you are a goose flying home from the UK over to Siberia and you are out by one degree, you are going to be very lost by the time you get to Siberia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, so mathematically, in terms of angles and knowledge and application, our geese are pretty clever. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating because it's a discussion about where is precision absolutely necessary, but where is there also room for flexibility and thoughts of, you know, relativity that even if you go really high up into space, there's a differentiation of time due to the change in gravity and, you know, these fascinating ideas that become um, that, that people need to accept even as they go farther and farther along in math and physics. So, Juliet, I'm wondering, um, are there any other resources that you can recommend for teachers? So there are your books, your website. Is there anything else that you could think of that you would recommend for teachers to really sink their teeth into taking the math outdoors and engaging their students? Um, I think, first of all, I think things are springing up left, right and centre. They really are which is great and if you find somebody or some organization that is doing some great stuff and it, it resonates with you go for it you know absolutely go for it um a resource i would like to flag up is um there's two things in in australia there's been a, a bit of work done around um thinking about indigenous ways of thinking around maths and so there is the association, I've written it down here, yes, the Aboriginal and Torres Island Straits Mathematical Alliance, that's ATSIMA, uh, as it's abbreviated to, A-T-S-I-M-A, and they are really promoting Indigenous ways of considering maths, and then can, at the same time, from I think it's Queensland, the Murray Maths programme has been developed as well. Um, and I think that is worth looking at too, in terms of just expanding what are we doing and is the maths we are teaching truly inclusive for all the groups with whom we work? That so, is so, so important. Thank yeah. you for those two recommendations. I'm going to link them in the introduction to this podcast. Juliet. Thank you so much for being on the Eco Inquiry podcast. I've learned a tremendous amount from you over the years and also today. And I plan on listening to this podcast over and over again. You've got me thinking about how I'm going to engage my students lining up and in the hallway and on our way outside and different ways we can come together as professionals to expand learning and engage our students 
in math outdoors and, and all of the curriculum outdoors and also as a as a pathway for um, wellness and emotional wellness as we as we hopefully move out of the COVID pandemic. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And it's been a pleasure to share this podcast with you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you, Juliet.